Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. I'm so pleased to invite you to an event by Heritage Events Live, what you need to know about Biden's prescription drug agenda. We have a great panel lined up for you today, so I'm pleased to invite them to join me on screen as I give you, tell you a little bit about them. We have Doug Badger, who is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and at the Galen Institute. We also have Adam Mossoff, who is a visiting fellow at Heritage and Intellectual Property and a professor at George Mason. And we have Peter Pitt, who is president of Center for Medicine in the Public Interest and a former associate FDA commissioner. So we will uh, turn to our panelists now and ask them to share some thoughts with us, and then we'll get straight to your questions. So, Doug Badger, lay the landscape for us. What is going on with the Biden administration's proposals on prescription drugs and what's going on in Congress? And how should we think about it? Well, there are two major proposals that I want to lay out for you uh, at the outset. One is legislative. It's H.R. 3, a bill that, uh, the, uh, that has uh, been introduced in the Congress. And the second is an effort by the Biden administration uh, to waive intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines, which would be an international effort through the World Trade Organization. So let me break those two down for you. Let's start with H.R. 3. So what happens? Well, the secretary compiles two lists, 125 drugs that have the highest net spending in the Medicare Part D program, and then 125 drugs that have the highest net spending in the economy at large. Obviously, there might be two, there might be some overlap between those two lists. In April of next year, tax day, April 15th, the secretary would select at least 25 drugs from those lists Secretary can select more, of course, but at least 25 to negotiate prices. In addition, uh, any insulin product would be subject to government negotiation, as well as certain new market entrants. So how does the negotiation work? Well, the secretary looks at the average international market price, as the uh, legislation puts it. They look at six countries, Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, and the UK, and they say, what's the price of that? What's the average price of that product in those six countries? And then off that price, they set two goalposts for negotiation. One is the so-called target price, which would be the lowest price in those six countries. And the other would be 120% of the average price. They would then enter in a negotiation with each of these products with their uh, manufacturer to establish what would be the maximum fair price. Now that fair price, understand, does not only apply to government programs, it applies to every single private health insurance plan in the country, both in the individual and the group market. They are automatically deemed uh, to be uh, uh, part of those negotiations. Um, well, why would a manufacturer even get into that game? The answer is pretty simple there are penalties. If a manufacturer does not accept the last best offer by the secretary by a time certain, it'd be March of uh, 2023, 
then the government imposes an excise tax on them that rises for every day that they stay out of it they get a, a higher level ultimately it's an excise tax equal to 95 percent of the manufacturer's revenue from that product in the preceding year understand that's in addition to their corporate rate it's not deductible basically the government says if you will not accept our final offer we will take the revenue from your product in the form of an excise tax so it is a negotiation but it's not the sort of negotiation we might be familiar with. The second uh, is uh, now on to the second front. The Biden administration announced on, on May 5th, the US Trade Representative Catherine Tai, that they will be part of a world trade organization process in which they will join with Russia and China in advocating a waiver of intellectual property rights for COVID-19 manufacturers like Pfizer, Moderna, BioNTech, et cetera. Um, the, uh, the administration is committed to negotiating uh, in favor of this and getting the World Trade Organization to adopt that. The World Trade Organization has a consensus process. You've got to get all 124 members uh, to uh, sign on to whatever this text-based agreement is. So far, Germany, Japan, and other countries are not supportive of this. The U.S., J China, Russia, and other countries are supportive of it. The expectation is that this will not be resolved until a ministerial meeting, which is scheduled for November of this year. So you have the legislation and you have the World Trade Organization process that the Biden administration is pursuing. Pretty sweeping changes. Adam, take a deeper dive for us into what the Biden administration is proposing to do with intellectual property patents. How should we think about that? Oh, thanks, and it's it's a great question. Um, as as Doug described, you know the the intellectual property waiver at the World Trade Organization that the Biden administration has supported in an unprecedented move. The United States has never supported uh, a waiver from our international treaty obligations to to enforce and protect um, the rights of creators and innovators in our country and in other countries. Um, and uh, and this will ultimately have to be implemented through legislation in this in this country, and it will eventually uh, involve not just a waiver of patent rights, but a waiver of also intellectual property rights in trade secrets, copyrights, and any other types of of protected uh, knowledge and know-how. And that really is of great concern because patents are publicly disclosed, but trade secrets are secret, and once you disclose them. The cat is out of the bag, you can't get it back. And we're talking about really important, significant, valuable trade secret information, for instance, and in how you develop mRNA uh, uh, <clears throat> um, vaccines and drugs. mRNA is a platform technology. And, um, and once that's released to the world um, through course uh, a course transfer of some type or other, through to types of quote incentives unquote that maybe Doug described, the you know, excise taxes or other types of punishments, um, you know, then anyone can use it for any purposes beyond just the COVID pandemic. The 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 value in the intellectual property is completely wiped out, um, and and this is very significant because it not only challenges and strikes at the core of what has been the driver of the U.S. innovation economy, the driver of the entire biotech revolution of the past. 
uh, several decades has been our patent system and our intellectual property system, reliable and effective rights that have made possible billions of private uh, of private R&D investments, um, millions of labor hours to create technologies like this mRNA platform. Once that's released to the world, anyone can use it for ongoing development of either other drugs, and we're talking anyone, including Russia and China, um, as well as the countries that originally were pushing for the waiver, India and South Africa and others. Um, and you know, and this is of concern because not only will they then ignore, continue to ignore our intellectual property rights as they have in the past, um, you know, they could also potentially use it to manufacture biological weapons or other types of threats to our national security. So, um, so this this move by the Biden administration to support the waiver at the WTO is really significant. It's a, it's a tremendous threat to our innovators and our creators, and it really undermines everything that our intellectual property system has made possible for not just people in our country, but for the entire world. We are this. We we produce over almost two thirds of all new medical innovations. Are, are come out of the United States of America in part because of the incentives and the, and uh, provided by reliable and effective patent rights and new medical innovations. Well, both of you put a lot on the table, and some of these changes uh, are these changes are sweeping, and some of the rationale for these changes is being tied very specifically to the COVID nineteen vaccine. Uh, we saw these vaccines come to market in unprecedented time, far ahead of the normal schedule. And the left is saying there's a big debate about the role that government played. And so the left is saying, well, the government made this possible. Our money, our, our, regula our regulations, our support. And that's a reason um, that the government, that, excuse me, the drug companies should not profit from these particular vaccines. Um, and they don't need to keep their patents. So I'd like us to explore how we should think about this. Um, Peter, you were at the FDA when the um, overseeing the process that uh, brought these vaccines to market so quickly. What do you think about the left's argument? What do you think are the true successes and the lessons we should be learning from bringing the COVID-19 vaccine to market as quickly as it was? Well, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but you know, whether it's HR3 or the temporary waivers of vaccine patents, you know, what this is, is a war against innovation. And there are a lot of negative consequences, and they're not unintended consequences, because what the uh, the hard left really wants is to have government run healthcare from top to bottom. Uh, let's face it, you know, price controls equal choice controls, uh, equals no innovation. You know, the, the countries in the world that have a, a robust free market system, patent and intellectual property protection are where innovation comes from, and that's not an accident. You know, relative to you know, who invents therapeutics and diagnostics and vaccines, uh, the answer is it's complicated. The simplistic answer from people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth uh, Warren and, and others is that, well, the government does all the work. All the pharmaceutical company does is market it and make all the profits. Nothing could be further from the truth. So let's start with therapeutics and remdesivir. Uh, remdesivir was the first therapeutic out there that really, through the FDA, was granted an, emer an emergency use authorization and worked. It kept people who suffered from serious manifestations of COVID-19, the elderly people with uh, 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 respiratory conditions and other serious healthcare conditions from dying. You know, Gilead Science, the company that uh, developed the drug, uh, gave the, the patent away for free to about 125 
uh, low income and developing countries. So, you know, people that say the pharmaceutical industry is just in for the money, quite frankly, don't know what they're talking about. And I think that it's offensive, you know, but a lot of members of Congress called on um, the White House and said, we want you to invoke what's called buy dole margin rights. These drugs, Remdesivir was developed by the government. We shouldn't have to pay money for it. We want the patent to be ours. And so uh, the government did a very comprehensive study and, to, and rather than finding in favor of uh, the, uh, the progressive crazies said, you know, actually the government did very little relative to this innovation. There aren't gonna be any margin rights. The patent is not going to be taken away. And uh, the people that were baying and howling for this all of a sudden had nothing to say. You know, clearly government plays a very important role in, in early research, no doubt about it. But you know, overwhelmingly, innovation comes from the private sector, and most of the spending on research and development comes private comes from the private sector. You know, John Adams said that facts are pesky things, and we can't we can't allow the facts not to be part of this conversation. If science is back, then that, then that has to be for everybody, and the same is true for vaccines. You know, Pfizer, BioNTech, uh, Johnson and Johnson, Moderna shortly potentially AstraZeneca and others have put in a lot of money. What the government did was underwrite the risk of manufacturing at risk, and that's huge. I think what it shows isn't that one partner uh, is superior to other, that partner being the government, but rather when you bring the power of the ecosystem to bear against a public health threat, we can accomplish amazing things. And I'm very proud to say that the FDA played a very important non-political role in making that happen, following the science, and really leading us towards victory against the pandemic. Well, let's dig in a bit more on this. Um, you're putting some, some good facts on the table. There was a New York Times article recently, um, and I'm gonna paraphrase the head, headline a bit, um, which basically suggested that the US um, government is the, is the reason, which you've just rebutted, for uh, the success of the vaccine because they got in bed with the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and the EU tried to rely on the private market. Uh, tell, tell, tell us your reaction to that claim. Well, you know, I read the New York Times every day. It's my hometown paper. And let me say in a positive way, I love the crossword puzzles. You know, when you, when you, when you think about what they're saying in terms of, you know, how, where drugs come from, where vaccines come from, what warp speed meant, who played what role, uh, they're, they're dancing in the dark and they're, and they're telling half-truths and myths-truths. And a, a half-truth is a whole lie. That's highly unfortunate because people go to our nation's newspaper of record for the truth, not for uh, distorted facts. You know, the, the fact of the matter is that certainly with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, the government invested no money. But what they did do was, you know, underwrite the risk of manufacturing, and, and that's huge. You know, there aren't good guys and bad guys in this scenario. We're, we're all good guys. We made it happen together. You know, again, this goes back to the, to the playbook, to the scenario that government does everything well, private industry is, is, is a leech sucking money, you know, from the pockets of Americans. That, that simply is not true. And unless we focus on the value of these medications and these vaccines and these diagnostics, where they came from, the hard work of hundreds of private sector and government individuals, we're doing ourselves a tremendous disservice. It was a team effort. It needs to be a team effort. Looking for good guys and bad guys is politics. And that should have no role whatsoever in this conversation. Um, maybe that's being naive, but that's the way I feel. Thank you. It's it's good to have the context from someone who was there. Doug, is there anything you want to add on the EU's approach? 
Yeah, I do think so. I, I mean, one of the things is, as Peter talked about in the manufacturing agreements, the Trump administration and was criticized for this was very aggressive in, in uh, pre-committing to buying hundreds of millions of doses from multiple vaccine manufacturers. Essentially, they bet on every horse. Not everyone came in. So far, only three of those companies, three of the six companies that they entered into this agreement with have gotten emergency use authorizations from the FDA. Uh, the EU took the approach of government-run healthcare. We're gonna get one supplier who's gonna give us the lowest price. Uh, that turned out for them to be AstraZeneca. And um, the, the experience they've had over there has been uh, a little less happy than uh, what, what we've seen here. Since then, they are also getting Pfizer vaccines and others, and they're beginning to uh, catch up with the US. But uh, we have, uh, uh, by, the, by the approach taken by the Trump administration to simply say, you guys go out and compete. You get, if the FDA gives you a green light to uh, bring your product to market, we'll buy it. And um, the, the results have been exceptionally good. Let's talk about uh, one of the results. Um... Adam, uh, let's talk about the, the role of intellectual property in laying the groundwork for these kinds of successes that we saw. Um, according to an, an analysis by a group called the People's Vaccine Alliance, at least nine new billionaires have been created because the COVID-19 vaccines earned so much money, including through these pre-purchases from government. Uh, one of those nine billionaires, the CEO of Moderna, who is obviously um, a very uh, widely used vaccine in the United States, um, so some on the left are arguing that these profits, um, which derive from patent rights, have created inequalities. And these equalities are leaving people behind in some of the less developed uh, parts of the world. So the solution the left proposes is to strip these companies of their patent rights. So what is the role, in your view, um, of advancing, of patents advancing uh, vaccine development? Um, and is it better for the world, particularly for those living in the most impoverished countries, if the WTO proceeds with this um, uh, petition by, by the Biden administration to strip these companies yeah. of their patent rights? Yeah, that, that's a really great question because this is an area, as, as Peter emphasized, where there is massive amounts of rhetoric and very actual little facts and data that are actually driving the claims that are being made. Um, and so um, let me start first with the, 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 your, the, the point that you ended at the end with uh, about the developing world and patents um, as a driver of, of medical innovation. And I will just lay this fact on the table. This is an undeniable fact. There is zero evidence, zero, that patents have stymied, held up, or prevented the development the manufacturing or the distribution of any drugs or vaccines. In fact, the evidence is all the opposite, that vaccines, ha that patents have been a facilitator of this mRNA platform developed by Moderna and BioNTech in its, in its licensing agreement with Pfizer, um, and uh, which by the way, was a technology that was developed over Two decades. So they were. So the founder of BioNTech, you know, began Dr. Kalachrak. I don't know how to pronounce her name correctly. Um, she, you know, she began researching this in the in the mid 1990s. In fact, she couldn't get grants for it because it was such a radical technology. People thought she was crazy. And so this goes to Peter's point that this was a largely, almost entirely, 100% privately funded, privately driven investment 
uh, uh, product and, and something that was done on the basis of the fact that we had promised them reliable and effective property rights and the, the fruits of their labors that they engaged in significantly over several decades to create this incredible technology, which has then facilitated a unprecedented, historically unprecedented response to a worldwide pandemic. Um, I mean, the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic won't even come close to the 1918 Spanish flu uh, pandemic, which killed an estimated 50 million people worldwide at a time when the world population was 15% of what it is today. Um, I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's incredible, the, the, the response from the biopharmaceutical industry and the fact that then they are turned around and attacked for this by saying, oh my gosh, how dare you become successful with your incredible, unprecedented uh, human achievement in creating these new technological marvels, remdesivir, which is the byproduct itself of a well over a decade of research and development, and of which Gilead will spend well over a billion dollars privately of its own money to uh, in, in, in in developing and distributing, um, and for them to be attacked for this and to say, oh, how dare you succeed? How dare you be successful? When I hear that people have become made billionaires of this, to me, that is a that that indicates that we are all thriving and are alive today because of their achievements and because of their work. And that's exactly what the United States has stood for. This has been, this is what it has, it has represented to the world. Come to the United States, work here, develop, innovate, create, and you will be protected in the fruits of your productive labors and you will succeed and become incredibly successful yourself and other people will uh, will be, uh, will, be uh, will benefit and will succeed as well. And we will have a growing innovation economy and a th thriving, flourishing society. And that's, and so, you know, as Peter made very clear, you know, there was no government support for this, uh, for the development of the mRNA platform. It's not true that they're profiting off of government money. Um, you know, the, the government purchases, the advanced purchase agreements and things of that were made uh, through, the, through, the, uh, through Operation Warp Speed was not about the development of the vaccine. It was about the actual manufacturing and production of it uh, and, making, and getting it out to the world. And the government said, we're going to do this. Um, and so the government also builds roads and funds public universities. And this is the classic move of the left. Just take the fact that the government does engage in certain activities in our country and fund certain things and then turn around, just like President Obama said, and say, you didn't build that. Therefore, we get to take it away from you from what you did actually build and create, which is the actual innovation. You know, I think what's interesting is Adam makes a good point. You know, the, the, the progressive hard left says well, we've got a bunch of lies. And if you don't like this lie, try this one. You know, this is a war against patents writ large. Uh, the World Health Organization has a list of 100 essential drugs. And from aspirin to Zithromax, uh, they're all off patent. And they're still in dire shortage in the developing world. So, you know, if patents are the problem, why is this so? But again, you know, that's an inconvenient truth uh, that we need to keep reminding people of that if you stick to the facts, you ultimately get to a good place. And if you allow the rhetoric to drive the discussion, patients lose. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all um, for that sobering analysis, a truly sobering and, and also inspiring about what can happen when we get the government parameters right to support innovation as opposed to undercut it. So let's talk about the um, consequences of getting it wrong. So you have talked about some very sweeping changes that could, I think it's not an understatement to say, transform the operating environment in which these uh, drug companies bring drugs to market. 
So Doug, tell us a bit about what would happen to patients if we saw these kinds of changes. What would happen to their ability to get the treatments that they need? Well, thanks, Marie. And um, I, I want to go back now to the legislative proposal, HR, HR 3. And, and let me level set for a minute. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics came out with their inflation figures, the increase in consumer price index from April 20 to April 21, April 2020 to April 2021. The overall consumer price index was an unnervingly high 4.2%. The index for drug prices was minus 1.8%. Prescription drug prices have been falling since 2019. And as of last month, we're at a level last seen in the summer of 2017. So when we hear the um, concerns about drug prices, bear in mind, that unlike pretty much everything else in our economy right now, they're going down, not going up. Uh, so let's understand, as, as Peter said, the facts uh, uh, of the problem we're trying to address. Now, HR3 says, well, they're still too high. We've got to get them down. What are the two effects of bringing in, essentially importing price controls from six foreign governments into the US? Well, I would argue there are two. One has to do with access to newly invented drugs. And the second has to do with, are these drugs invented ever? Uh, let's look at the first one. So uh, I did an analysis a few years back. The Trump administration actually proposed a Medicare demonstration project in which Medicare Part B prices, these are drugs not the ones you pick up at the pharmacy, but they're injected and infused, generally physician-administered, think chemotherapy, uh, think some of the uh, treatments for autoimmune diseases. And they said, you know what? We're going to establish an international pricing index. And they put together a market basket of countries and said, okay, we're going to base Part B prices on these, uh, uh, what, what they are in foreign governments. And what we found was when we looked at new drugs introduced into the marketplace between 2012 and 2019, Americans have access to an overwhelming majority, around 96% of those new drugs. When you looked at the uh, drugs in the International uh, Pricing Index, those countries, you found that those uh, countries had got access to only a fraction of new drugs. When the government, quote unquote, negotiates with a manufacturer, the one thing a manufacturer can do is say, we're not gonna make this product available in your market. More recently, Pharma has taken a look at specifically the six countries in the, that HR3 would direct the secretary to use in setting American drug prices. What they found is of new drugs introduced between 2011 and late 2020. Americans have access to 86% of those drugs. The average for those six countries, 52%. So half these drugs that the government is going to be setting prices for aren't even available in, uh, in some of these countries. In Australia, it's 38% of those new drugs. Germany is the, is the leader at 64%. We're at 86%. And when you look drug by drug, cancer drugs, we have access to 95%. 
those countries, people in those countries, 60%. For mental illness, Americans have access to 100% of drugs invented since 2011. For those six countries, 31%. Uh, and when it comes to rare diseases, again, Americans have access to 96% versus 56%. So the first thing you have to think about when the government gets into the drug price negotiation business is, are some of these new drugs going to be available to Americans, not available to the French or Brits uh, or, or some of the other countries on this, on this list? That's the first thing. The second thing that I think both Peter and Adam have, um, have alluded to, uh, but that I think we, we lose sight of is, well, are the drugs going to be um, uh, invented in the first place? Not a question of access to a new drug, but whether a new drug actually exists. Uh, the President's Council of Economic Advisors issued a 2019 report that analyzed an earlier version of HR3, one passed by the House in December of 2019. They said that this would uh, reduce using Congressional Budget Office estimates, reduce pharmaceutical uh, revenue by 500 billion to a trillion dollars over 10 years. Uh, about 15 to 20% of revenue uh, goes into uh, the um, uh, research and development in these uh, pharmaceutical companies. So if you take half a trillion or a trillion dollars away, you're reducing R&D spending by 75 billion to 200 billion over a decade. What does that mean? Well, a company spends about $2 billion uh, in re research and development to get one new drug to market. A lot of that spending is on drugs that never make it out of the lab uh, or fail somewhere during the process. But if you divide it out, the, the, the amount spent by the number of drugs actually approved is about $2 billion. So if you take $75 billion to $200 billion out of pharmaceutical research and development, what you're going to get is fewer new drugs, up to 100 fewer, according to the Council of Economic Advisors. When you don't get these new drugs, people don't get treatments for uh, diseases uh, that they might otherwise have access to. So fewer people go to work, fewer people are going to school, fewer people are engaged in productive activity. They estimated that HR3 would therefore reduce economic output uh, by $375 billion to a $1 trillion over the next decade. Breaking it down, um, the government, CBO, said would save $35 billion. Economic output would drop by $375 billion to a $1 trillion, basically anywhere from 10 to 30 times the savings to the government. So the, there are real costs associated with price controls. And in order to, to, it's hard to visualize, well, what does it mean if one fewer new drug or eight fewer new drugs or 30 or 100 don't come on the market? And I would, again, return to the example of COVID-19. Where would we be as a society today if we were still relying on what public health people call non-pharmaceutical interventions, masks, lockdowns, social distancing, as our primary weapon against COVID-19. And I would argue that uh, the innovation in, in this setting, the production and distribution 
of COVID-19 vaccines has made for uh, a much better scenario than we would be without that pharmaceutical innovation. Now, one other thing I think that's really important is, you know, we all agree that the goal of healthcare reform is to broaden access to healthcare. Uh, when people say my drugs are too expensive, what they mean overwhelmingly is that my copay is too expensive, my copays are going up, my out-of-pocket costs are rising. And that is not exclusively a factor of the pharmaceutical manufacturing issue. It's the insurance industry, it's prescription benefit managers who miraculously have gotten off scot-free without a word in the verbiage of any legislation supported by the majority party or the, or the president. Again, it, it, it's just a it's a complete lack of honesty to address an ecosystem problem without an ecosystem solution. And I, in fact, I'd be even more specific that you know the, the high cost of payments are also a result of cross subsidies mandated through Obamacare and many other pieces of legislation, and de facto cross subsidies created by the fact that Medicare and Medicaid already pay below price below market prices. Um, and so, you know, if you are a producer or or a hospital or a doctor, you have to make up that that difference somehow. And so, this has just been a, an economic fact in our healthcare industry for decades now, and it's so just uh, false to say, oh, the problems are patents. I, again, I mean, it's 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 the patents which are making these drugs possible in the first place, as Doug and 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 Peter have have uh, have uh, described. And you know, and, and again, it's the private investment in in um in, that has made these possible. Um, as Doug described, and I'll just, I I put a slightly different uh, uh, framing on the numbers, but you know, the 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 last numbers we have is in 2018. It was 129 billion dollars in 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 private funding of R&D in the biopharmaceutical sector. And that was in, co in comparison to the 43 billion in public funding provided by NIH. But all of that, so, that, so first of all, you already have a four to one ratio of private to public. And then even over that public funding, it's all very upstream basic research. So a study that just came out um, just uh, about a month ago, found that of tw over 23,000 NIH grants in just the year 2020, they're linked to only 18 drugs approved as of 2020, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 23,000 NIH grants in, tw in 2000, they're linked to only 18 drugs approved as of 2020. Um, and which shows to show you that, you know, the, the, NI, the NIH grants are going to very far upstream basic research. They're not going to the actual development of the actual pharmaceutical treatments that are being uh, created by the pharmaceutical industry and put into the healthcare market that are benefiting actual people's lives. You know, you know H.L. Mencken said that for every complicated problem, there's a simple solution that's wrong. You know, <laughs> HR3 and International Price Index, you know, these are wrong. The non-interference clause, which prohibits the government from negotiating prices, although the government does negotiate prices, and which HR3 spent so much time trying to knock down, was written by Ted Kennedy and Tom Daschle, two senators that understood the complexity of the healthcare system. So not only dealing with facts, but looking back at history might do uh, some members of Congress a, a world of good in terms of developing plans to move forward to broaden access to healthcare. Yeah, I think you're pointing out that there's been a bipartisan consensus over the years that um, while there will always be trade-offs in public policy, what we want to get right is to balance the need to make sure people can access the fruits of innovation, but that there remains a culture that encourages innovation, encourages the investment necessary, and that requires uh, getting the government, um, the policies right, 
Um, so let's talk a little bit and then we'll briefly, and then we'll go to audience questions. Um, while we celebrate the many wins and successes um, of both the, the policies that have worked to create um, the culture of success and the culture of innovation that led to these wonderful developments like the COVID vaccine, we, we also acknowledge there are weight rooms to improve. Um, so Doug, you have written on this, maybe, maybe 45 seconds on uh, <laughs> what Congress could do. You literally wrote a paper how Congress could help lower prescription drug prices. So maybe briefly walk us through that. Let me, let me focus strictly on the Medicare Part D program where there is bipartisan consensus on how it needs to be reformed. Um, the program has been very, very successful. The premiums are lower today in 2021 than the CMS actuary predicted they would be in the year 2006. So 15 years later, uh, they're lower than on average than that. And one of the ways they've done it is through uh, private negotiation uh, between pharmaceutical benefit managers and uh, uh, and the and, and the manufacturers, two areas where it needs to be approved, as as Peter's referred to, one is that for very particularly very very high cost drugs, these are very burdensome for seniors. We need to put an out of pocket maximum for seniors once they've spent whatever you said at two thousand a year, three thousand a year. Once they hit that threshold, they should be uh, they should be held harmless. Uh, that would do a world of good in that area. The second thing is that the way the program is structured now, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers and the Part D plans bear the risk below for spending below the catastrophic level, but above it, 80% goes to the taxpayers. So what's happened? We spend less on the below the catastrophic threshold, the area where the private sector controls it less in 2019 than we did in 2006 in, in that tier, 11 billion in 2019 versus 18 billion in 2006. Above that threshold where the government picks up 80%, we've gone from 6 billion a year spending to 46 billion a year spending. The solution is to realign the incentives in the catastrophic tier instead of the government paying 80%, uh, you should have the manufacturers and the uh, and the uh, PBMs paying 80%. Let them butt heads, let them negotiate, hold the beneficiary harmless, uh, and make the program work better for seniors and for taxpayers. Peter, anything you want to add from your experience at FDA? Well, I think that you know what the Biden administration can do to uh, empower the FDA to do a better job bringing new therapies to market quicker and more safely is to nominate an FDA commissioner. You know, it, it, it's shocking to me that it has been this late in the game and still uh, only kind of just idle chatter. You know, obviously the agency will continue to function. Uh, it has uh, only a handful literally of political appointees, Schedule C appointees of which the commissioner is one. A confirmed commissioner uh, that who has a, a goal and a mission can inculcate senior staff and move, move things forward. On, on the Part D front, I think the lesson to be learned here, and I worked on the development of Part D, is that when you allow government to partner with industry and partner with healthcare providers, amazing things happen, but occasionally politics gets in the way. When Part D initially passed, Nancy Pelosi said, oh, we're gonna run on this. We're gonna kill the Republicans on Part D. Well, that was a bad call. Uh, it has 95% approval ratings, as Doug mentioned, its costs are going down. That's real free market competition. That's what works. So yeah, ways to build on what's working and uh, continue to refine it for future success. 
So we're going to hear from our audience. You're going to hear the voice of Marguerite Bowling, who is the Director of Healthcare Communications here at Heritage. She's going to read questions that have come in from the audience. So Marguerite. Sorry about that. This is for Doug and the rest of the panel. Why would the Biden administration take the three-fold three approach to setting prices? Uh, what is your sense of what this will do for prescri prescription drug prices? Well, I, in, in, in short, I think this is a politically popular uh, issue. President Trump certainly saw a great, uh, um, a great. Uh, political support out of this when he said the pharmaceutical industry is getting away with murder. Um, unfortunate choice of terms since the pharmaceutical industry is actually saving lives, but uh, it, you know, that kind of rhetoric works. Um, they also, as you know, uh, the administration has uh, spending money fairly freely and with their newest uh, iteration is the so-called American Families Plan, the infrastructure bill and all these other things. They say they want to pay for it and if you put price controls on drugs, the Congressional Budget Office will say you're saving the federal government a lot of money, uh, and uh, and so it'll pay for it. So it's a, it's a twofold um, attractive attraction to this, but um, unfortunately, as uh, as 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 Peter and Adam have well pointed out, uh, there are costs uh, to approaching that uh, issue this way, and they are considerable and they are grave. I think you know the, the reason that they're doing it is because many members uh, are uh, ignorant and they're doctrinaire, which is an extraordinarily dangerous combination. You know, uh, we haven't talked about the Medicare for All proposition. Yesterday, Senator Murray and Representative Pallone sent a letter asking for people's thoughts on Medicare for All, but surprisingly didn't mention the fact that uh, insurance companies, private insurance companies, private providers can't recognize the economy of scale and sell policies across state lines like Medicare can. So if you really want to allow people to pay lower cost, you know, uh, think about insurance reform. Let Medicare compete fairly against the private industry and let's see what happens. Because when that happens, government rarely wins. Give people choice. You know, I think that part of the issue with people who are behind some of these proposals is they don't want people to have choice. They don't think people are smart enough to have choices. Government knows best. And that's a major point of difference philosophically between what we're talking about today and some of these legislative proposals that we've been talking about. And Medicare for all, of course, would outlaw most private insurance and put us all in a government-run plan. So talk about taking away choices. Marguerite? Sure, one more. And I think we've touched on this, but um, the highlight that there, it seems like the patents are just very complicated schemes. Can't we have a simpler way of encouraging more drugs to the market without letting companies um, monopolize or raise prices through the roof? All right, so I, that, I, I'll I'll take up the uh, response to that. Um, so there there is a there's a very common misconception about patents that we just have patents to incentivize invention. Um, and so and and I can see how some people might infer that from some of our discussions about the excessive R and D expenditures to actually even create these drugs. But what we're talking about when we're talking about the creation of the drugs is not the invention of the drug, but also the the ultimate commercial deployment of a therapeutic treatment that works in the marketplace. And this is where the patent system achieves things that no other system does. And because you can incentivize invention through lots of different mechanisms other than patents. You can have prizes, you can have tax subsidies, you 
you can have patronage systems, which is what historically for most of, your, for most of human history they did. Um, the United States took a very different approach. We said uh, in our constitution, Congress is authorized to protect innovators and creators, copyrights and patents, um, and that these are property rights. We were the very first country that really took that seriously. And what we meant by that is that these were property rights. You could go into the marketplace, you could transact with them, you could license with them, you could use them as a foundation for venture capital investment, as, a, as collateral. And so that's what the patent system achieves. It achieves this bridge from the lab to the marketplace by making possible the investment in and ongoing development of all of the innovative commercial mechanisms and the development of the means by which you actually have working at real world therapeutic treatments for people to take to benefit their lives. And so this is what our patent system achieves. And this is why the United States also wasn't just unique in protecting uh, patents as property rights generally. We also took the lead when the rest of the world uh, um, uh, hesitated in securing biotech innovations. Starting in 1980, we said, you know, biotech innovations, genetically modified organisms, and other types of, of discoveries of these of medical innovators are protectable in the patent system. And this has been proven now by economists again and again that as a result of that decision, billions of dollars flowed into R&D investments and the development of a market structure of all of the agreements, the licensing agreements, like the licensing agreement between Bionitech and Pfizer, where Bionitech had the innovation capital and Bionitech had the labor and infrastructure to then deploy their innovation in the marketplace that Bionitech didn't have because it's just a little startup. And this is a very common type of commercial agreement. There's thousands of information sharing agreements of other types of licensing and contractual and commercial arrangements between hundreds and hundreds of different biotech companies and biopharmaceutical companies throughout the entire industry all on the foundation of property rights as a lawyer and i teach when i teach my students you know the subject matter of contracts and commercial agreements is property and this is the story of the success of the u.s innovation economy generally and of the u.s uh, uh, and of the u.s uh, model for the rest of the world for the past 200 years you know that, that question that question is very important because it, it makes it sound like patents raise costs you know in in europe so in the u.s 90 percent of the drugs that we take here are generic drugs in europe and canada generic drugs cost more than they do in the u.s so mm -hmm. if patents are the problem that doesn't jive with the reality well, well said, and thank you all. You have made clear to us um, the facts of the situation, where we're succeeding as a country with putting forward a operating environment for those whose jobs are to come up with new cures and new treatments to do their job in a way that works to help patients and families have the care they need. And you've made very clear the potential transformative consequences of the Biden agenda and why we should reject that and how people can think about responding to the claims by those who support it with better facts and better understanding. So I wanna thank our panelists for joining us today uh, at our event. I want to encourage our audience who'd like to continue the conversation to reach out to people at the information provided here. And I'd like to thank you all for joining us. Um, if immediately following this event, you're going to see a survey about the event, please fill it out. We'd like to take your feedback in order to continue offering content that's valuable to you. And to see the events we have coming up, please check out heritage.org events. And thank you again for joining us.